3: Welcome to a special episode of From Scratch. My name is Michael Ruhlman, and I write about food, cooking, and the work of the professional chef. In each episode, I speak with one chef and one non-chef about the same theme in order to connect this fundamentally human act with the world at large. But COVID-19 has prevented chefs from doing their job and running their restaurants, at least in the way they'd always been accustomed. In these special episodes, I'm connecting with chefs to see how they're doing and find out what they're doing in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. Today, I speak again with journalist Zachary Warmbroth, who covers financial services for Politico, and Chef Angie Marr, owner of the Beatrice Inn in New York City's West Village. Angie.
4: Hi, Michael. Hi, how are you?
3: (laughs) Kind of crazy. Thank you so much for doing this. No,
4: thank you so much for having me. Seriously.
3: These are crazy, crazy times, and I'm trying to figure out what you guys are going through. I mean, there you are on my street, which I've abandoned for the past three weeks. How is West 12th Street?
4: Well, we are keeping the lights on. You know, the first week I was closed because I was just trying to figure out what was going on. I think by the end of the first week I was A, I was going crazy in my house B, I, I was really trying to figure out if we could make takeout work and this is only our second week doing it
3: How's it going? I mean, describe the situation today. It's a Friday afternoon. What's going on there?
4: You know, kind of a snapshot of my day is like I got here at 8.30 so I could accept all the deliveries. I've been taking orders. I mean, right before we got on this podcast, you, know, you were hearing like all the phones ringing and like all of the things happening and it's tough because we're going from a a team of 49 people. And last week, we were only three kitchen team and myself cooking everything, putting away the deliveries, you know, doing all the prep work. And we're really talking about four people doing work that it would typically be 25 back of house. Like I've been washing, washing dishes, taking the trash out at night, accepting the deliveries, answering the phones, fulfilling orders taking orders it's you know it's crazy I like I'm no stranger to like 17 18 hour days but when you're talking about 17 18 hour days of like seriously like hard labor and like being physically in the kitchen it's crazy and you know I'm not I'm not that young anymore so it's really tough right now um you know the neighborhood has been so incredibly supportive I think that the first week everybody was kind of like in shock now people are like oh great the Beatrice is open because there's there's not a lot of restaurants in the village that are open right now I think we're maybe like one of maybe like Two or three, so it feels it feels a little desolate. It feels a little lonely, but it also, when we open for service at five o'clock, the amount of support that we've been getting from our neighborhood, from the regulars, I and mean, people are driving in from Brooklyn, you know, to pick up food. Oh it's, my God. Yeah, it's been really. You know, I think crisis like this, it, it kind of brings out the best and the worst in humanity. Uh-huh. And um, I feel very fortunate that in the last two weeks that we've been open for takeout, that we're experiencing the best.
3: How is that going with takeout? I mean, you're doing a lot of food. You can't sell wine, you can't sell liquor, which is where restaurants make so much of their their profit. We actually money.
4: can. We actually can. Oh, nice. Yeah, we were really lucky. You know, the SLA changed the liquor license laws and whereas before you could only sell like beer, right, for takeout. Mm-hmm. We can now do wine, so I have uh, I have wine. We've got beer, and then last Friday we started to go cocktails as well. Oh, nice! You know we're taking it week by week, and really the main goal of this whole thing is that look, I mean, you know, Michael, you've been in the business long enough. It's like you know, you know, from all the restaurateurs, you know, like no one's ever going to make any money doing takeout. Like I'm ah. never, I'm never going to be able to pay rents on West 12th Street doing takeout, right? Right, all right. Yeah. and. And that's not the point of this whole thing. I think the point of this whole thing is that our city, our, you know, the world really is kind of on pause right now. And we're in this, in this huge crisis. And after being closed for a week. I, you know, I sat long and thought about it long and hard about it because it was like, okay, you know, do we, do we stay inside? Do we stay quarantined? Or do we get as many people working as we possibly can and really be here for the neighborhood, be here for the community, be here for the city of New York that has been so good to us. And I thought about it and the reality of it is, is that the Beatrice in this restaurant has been here for a hundred years. It's been here for 100 years, and it's been here through the Depression. It was here through Sandy. It's going to be here through this. And for us to be able to keep the doors open, to keep people employed as best we can, to keep the community fed, that is what's important. Even if I don't make a a single dime off of this, even if I lose money, I'm going to continue to do this because it's the right thing to do.
3: How many orders are you taking? What kind of volume are you doing?
4: You know, it's never enough, right? That's always the story. <laughs> whether, yeah. whether, whether it's takeout or whether we were we were open like regular service, that's always going to be my answer, is it's never enough. Right now we're open Tuesday through Saturday from 5 to 9 p.m. We're open for takeout, and so we're taking calls for takeout, but we're also on caviar. We're doing as much volume as we can, and I think we're really trying to get the word out. I think you know this week is busier than last week, Because I think people are like starting to figure out that we're open Mm -hmm. and I'm hoping next week will be busier than this week. This week I was, I, you know, after we ran payroll and our cost of goods last week, we figured out, okay, great. We're able to bring in two more people from our team and employ two more people. So that's what we did this week. and, And I'm hoping that we can employ maybe three more people the next week if the numbers support it. You know, it's definitely a numbers game and I think it's definitely uh, you know, just a matter of like awareness and, and and letting people know that we're we're here and we're open. I'm hoping it's it's only gonna grow because the reality of it is, is I think that we are gonna be in this scenario, you know, at least until June.
3: Do you have a sense of how long you can maintain maintain this?
4: I'm hoping that we will be able to maintain all the way through. You know, I, I don't know if I'll be able to, to keep up with it physically because it's so much. Mm. Um, but my hope is that we're going to be able to grow this enough to get as much of my staff back as I can and working during this time. That's, that's the goal. One of
3: my big concerns was when this all happened was that, you know, how many restaurants are going to be be able to reopen when it's safe to go outside again. Is this a concern?
4: A hundred percent. A hundred percent, Michael. I mean, here's the thing. And, you know, look, a lot of people are like, oh, well, you guys are fine because you've got business interruption insurance. Well, business interruption insurance isn't paying for this. They're refusing to pay for this, so you know because
3: of the virus, because they had a like viral clause.
4: Yeah, they had some sort of viral clause. I mean, I think the first lawsuits against insurance companies were filed earlier this week, um, Mm -hmm. which I think is I think is necessary. I think that you know the government has to step in because insurance companies they should be be made to pay because you know if if not now, then when when would I need that. You know what I mean? Right. It's it's, it's right. right now. I think a lot of us in the industry are scathing right now because, you know, you have these billion dollar insurance companies who are just flat out refusing to pay for this. And I think that, you know, to answer your question about how many restaurants are going to be able to reopen, I'm going to be floored if 60 percent are able to reopen. I will be floored. I hope it's more, but I will be absolutely stunned if 60% of small business, maybe one, two location owners like me are able to uh-huh. reopen because it is that bad. I think that if the government doesn't step in, if insurance companies are not made to pay, if you know we, if we don't get some assistance, I do believe that the landscape of New York dining will change and it's going to be chains. That's mm-hmm. what I believe.
3: That's uh, very sad and very scary indeed. To be clear, you are an owner of the Beatrice Inn.
4: Yeah, I've owned this restaurant for four years now.
3: Are you the sole owner?
4: Yeah, it's it's me and my cousin.
3: Oh my God.
4: It's me and my cousin. And so for us, it's like, this is soup to nuts, a family-owned business. It's not like we're backed by, you know, one of like the bigger restaurateurs, nothing like that. Like, it's literally like we scraped every single penny that we had together in order to buy this business. And that's what we're faced with now is we're faced with how long is this going to go? You're faced with insurance companies who aren't, are offering you no help. And we're at the same time trying to also do the right thing for our 49 employees who most of which are single income households who rely on the paycheck that they get here to feed their families. Sure. And that's a huge responsibility.
3: Insurance has become a big deal. Most restaurants buy something called business interruption insurance. They pay a lot of money so that if their business is shut down, they don't lose their business. They're covered. But insurance companies started writing in virus exclusions, meaning they didn't have to pay if the business is shut down because of a virus. But it's a gray area. Technically, the virus didn't shut them down. State governments did. And that's just one example. One chef restaurateur I know has insurance, viruses included, and still their insurer refuses to pay. And so, well, what happens when every restaurant in the country files a claim all at once, regardless of the reason? To learn more, I reached out again to Zachary Warmbrot, a reporter for Politico covering small businesses and financial services. Find him also on Twitter, where under his first name, at Zachary, he makes up to the minute reports. Warmbrot spoke to me by phone from Washington, D.C. I'm talking a lot of restaurateurs who are irate. They've been paying for insurance for years, and now they cannot get covered for this interruption. Can you define the problem? Yeah,
1: I mean, the, the problem that's emerged over the last month or so, as you've had states and municipalities telling businesses they have to shut down, is that for restaurants, they have been paying over the years for business interruption insurance coverage. So, you know, that the expectation was, you know, if you were forced to short shut down, if, if there was some kind of damage. Damage to your, your property that forced you to close and you weren't bringing in revenue, well, at least you had a, a safety net through this insurance policy to, to stay afloat. And what they have found as, as restaurants and other small businesses have started taking these business interruption claims to their insurers is that – Most of the time, the uh, policies excluded viruses. So the insurers are coming back to the businesses and saying, look, we can't pay out a claim to you because we specifically said that this would would not cover uh, an interruption due to a pandemic like the one we're seeing now. And I think the insurance industry is is just expecting a lot of lawsuits over this, which could in some ways be very financially draining for the insurers, but they seem to have some confidence that they'll be protected here by the courts.
3: And this, of course, will take a long time to
2: play out.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is only just beginning, and you're only just now starting to see the lawsuits. So they'll have to work their way through the courts. And I guess it'll be a question of whether some of these restaurants will want to spend the money to take this all the way. Quickly back to the
3: insurance companies. They're not just evil, heartless bastards who are kicking back now saying, sorry, I see this line here, we don't owe you anything. They are trying to help the restaurants without risking their own businesses. Do you feel that way? The way that they explain their situation is from the
1: insurance industry perspective. They're saying, look, the whole model of insurance isn't designed for everyone in the country to file an insurance claim at the same time. Insurance companies have to manage their risk. And, you know, they make kind of these commitments to people that they'll be there to help them out when, you know, specific things happen to them. And, you know, what they're saying is there's just no way you could model an affordably priced insurance policy that would kick in when everyone across the country shuts down during a pandemic. And they're saying that, you know, if you were retroactively going to come and make us change these contracts, we're looking at hundreds of billions of dollars of money we would have to pay out. And it would actually threaten the livelihood of the insurers and their financial stability and cause, you know, another economic problem, you know, if you have insurance companies that are struggling to pay people. So that's their side of it. But I understand if you're someone who thought you were paying for coverage and then in the fine print it says this is excluded, I imagine that's a very hard, uh, it's very hard to be sympathetic to that.
3: If this goes to litigation, which it probably will that means for restaurants in the short term it may shut them down because they're not going to see any cash anytime soon if they have to
1: rely on litigation is that correct that's right i mean i I would expect that would be a very drawn out process and i'm sure the insurance industry is preparing for that
3: again just to be clear you said they were hoping for some other federal aid because of this insurance issue
1: that's what the insurance trade associations are floating And they have some retail organizations on board, like there's a a shopping center association, there's a national retail federation. You know, they have all kind of agreed on a proposal that they're basically pitching to Congress and the Trump administration to create this fund. It's been kind of described as a 9-11 victims fund in a way where it it would be just kind of uh, some money Congress would allocate, and then you would have an official who would basically decide who to pay it out to. But that's the closest I've seen so far to the insurers saying, you know, we're going to go above and beyond to help people. And again, that fund wouldn't even be paid for by the insurance industry. That'd be coming out of the federal government's coffers. taxpayers. right.
3: So there's no telling where this will end. Many chef restaurateurs are suing their insurers. Insurers are saying their business isn't set up for every single restaurant to file a claim simultaneously. Chef Thomas Keller, who has written that the insurance companies are sitting on 822 billion dollars of their money, has formed a group to try to lobby the President and Congress to force the insurers to pay. According to CNBC this week, state representatives such as Mike Thompson of California are introducing bills that will nullify the virus exclusion. But all this will take time to iron out. When we come back, I'll find out where this leaves the chef such as Angie Marr, who, with her cousin bought the Beatrice Inn, and what are we to do in the midst of so much uncertainty? One answer, of course, is to cook.
0: Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night.
2: Sunset cruise.
0: Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches.
2: Beaches.
0: What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds.
2: This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global.
3: Welcome back, listeners. I wanted to hear from Angie again about her state of mind, and I'm sure she echoes what many independent chef owners are feeling. What's your state of mind? You're, you're, happily, you're super busy, so you don't have time to dwell on things. But uh, how, how is your state?
4: You know, I fluctuate. You know, it's 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 really interesting, Michael, because you know I lost my father two years ago, and oh
3: God, I'm sorry. It, I lost okay, mine. And it's horrible.
4: Yeah, it's horrible. And um, but you know, you go through different stages of grief, right? Uh And when we made the decision to shut the restaurant down, we made the decision to shut the restaurant right before Cuomo ordered that that all restaurants and bars be shut down. And, Uh you know, that week, just processing it, it felt a lot like the grief that I went through when I lost my father, right? And I think Uh a lot of us are experiencing that grief right now because that is what it is. It's like we're losing... Our way of life we're losing you know it for me at least it feels like i very much lost what i've worked so hard you know i've been in new york for 10 years and i've worked all 10 years you know up to be able to purchase this restaurant to be able to build it into what it is and you know you've eaten here plenty of times so like you know you understand the magic that is held within these walls
3: i do indeed know God, on a snowy winter evening walking along West 12th Street, which looks pretty much the way it did a hundred years ago with its old simple townhouses. And to descend the steps below the decrepit Beatrice building into the warmth of the Beatrice Inn bar. Dark, rich wood and laughter. It's like stepping into an earlier time to have a Manhattan with my wife and then share a steak with her and a glass of red wine. It made all of life feel better We brought our family there for a pre-Christmas birthday celebration on Christmas and had one of the best roast ducks ever flambéed at the table. But really, any chef should be able to pull that off. Here's who Angie really is. My wife, Ann Hood, teaches writing one semester a year at the New School at 6th Avenue and West 12th Street. Hers was a late class that got out at 10 p.m. each Thursday. I met her at West 4th and West 12th Street in front of another of our neighborhood favorites, Cafe Clooney, which was just closing up. We sat on a bench there and tried to figure out what we had a hunger for and where to get it. Just then, across the street, Angie walked up the steps of her Beatrice Inn in street clothes, her night done. I called out to her and brought Anne over to officially meet the chef. Angie all but immediately said, have you eaten? And then, oh, I'm cooking for you. She brought us downstairs, had us seated at the bar, and reappeared moments later in her whites, ready to cook. And cook she did. Angie cuts an exotic swath through the Instagram world where she's Angie K. Marr. But this, my friends, is who she really is, a true cook. And as such, in these troubling times, while she still offers fancy chop house entrees like 90-day aged porterhouse steaks and roast duck for two for takeout, She's found herself wanting to cook homey dishes for comfort. So each day, one item is called family meal. Yesterday was pot roast with root vegetables. Earlier in the week, roast pork with apples, bacon, and cream. She posts the menu on her Instagram story every day, or you can go to the Caviar Meal Delivery site at tricaviar.com and search Beatrice Inn. It got me thinking about my own home cooking, the pandemic, and how I too want to go back to those meals that comfort. My wife Anne's go-to comfort food is pasta carbonara and her mother's tomato sauce with meatballs. Mine is roast chicken. I once posted the recipe, calling it the world's most difficult recipe because it's the exact opposite. I'm going to describe how to do it now. Here it is. Preheat your oven to 450 degrees. This is important, but if your oven is dirty, reduce it to 425 or it will smoke like Fran Leibovitz. Salt the chicken with coarse kosher salt. You want a generous coating, a tablespoon or so. Put the chicken in a skillet and put the skillet in the oven for one hour. That's it, take it out, let it sit for 15 or 20 minutes while you finish off whatever you're serving it with. But better yet, and this is really my favorite part of the meal, make a jus with simple ingredients. A carrot, an onion, some wine if you have it. Here's how. While the chicken is roasting, cut a carrot into ribbons using a vegetable peeler and thinly slice a small onion. As soon as you take the skillet out, remove the chicken to a cutting board or plate. Leave the skin stuck to the pan and the fat, of course. Being careful to always keep a towel on the skillet's handle because it's hot. Can't tell you how many times I've burned my hand this way. Put the pan over high heat and add the onion and carrot to cook in the hot chicken fat. When they're tender, add a cup of dry white wine. Scrape up everything stuck to the bottom of the pan. When the wine is gone and the fat is crackling again, add a cup of water and cook it down. The wine and water are pulling sugars out of the vegetables and those, along with the protein juices from the chicken, are caramelizing on the bottom of the pan once the liquid is gone. Add one last cup of water. Bring it to a boil, then turn off the heat. Cut or pull your chicken apart, serve it family-style on a platter, and spoon your magical jus over it. This is the kind of cooking that eases the stresses of isolation and uncertainty and nourishes our friends and family. Angie and Zachary, thank you so much. Angie, hang in there. You are beloved. Never stop cooking. This episode of From Scratch was engineered by Angie Marr and Zachary Warmbrot. From Scratch is produced by Jonathan Hawes Dressler. Our executive producer is Christopher Hasiotis. The music is by Ryan Scott off his album, A Freak Grows in Brooklyn. For a more thorough discussion of how to roast a chicken, Jonathan Waxman and Style, listen to the roasting episode of From Scratch from season one. From Scratch is a production of iHeartRadio.
0: chill vibes. Beach, How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds.
3: This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease